You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Vayikra. New Sefer. New Sefer, new beginnings, new book. Um, this, uh, this book, Vayikra, uh, which begins Vayikra, which is a whole discussion. I, I have to believe that you're going to have that discussion over Shabbat, so I'm not going to get into that question. Uh, although if anybody wants to explore that topic, why all of a sudden Hashem is calling Moshe and Moshe is not speaking, and what it means to be called, and why there's a small aleph, and what the difference is with Vayakir, whether things are happenstance or random or accidental, or whether everything is a calling and how you know the difference... Um, so that's a topic worth thinking about. Uh, I think I, I believe I gave this year, the past year last year on that, so it's up on YU Torah on the Right the website, whatever. Um, I want to have a different discussion with you tonight because it's really a fundamental issue. This is the middle book of the Torah. This is the core. This is the meat, the center of the Torah. Okay, Bereshit is the beginning. Shmot, we get out. We start to build a Mishkan, right? We get out of Egypt. By Midbar, we're in the desert, we're heading to Eretz Yisrael, and Moshe, soliloquy speech, that's Sefer Tzvarim. Vayikra is the meat. Right? We're supposed to be a mamlechet koanim, a kingdom of priests, role models. And the fundamental work of the koanim in the Beit HaMikdash is to bring korbanot, sacrifices. And this is Torah koanim. This Sefer is the, is the, the Torah that was given to the koanim, which is also us. You know, if you walk out of the Jaffa Gate and you make a right, and you take a half an hour walk, don't do this without asking somebody how to go, because if you go the wrong way, it's not good. You take a half an hour walk, you end up in a place called Ramatashkol. Ramatashkol is one of the newer neighborhoods that was built after the Six Day War. And uh, in the middle of Ramatashkol, is a hill. And if you go to this hill in the afternoon as the sun is setting, things are quiet, especially in the summer. And the wind kind of blows through the trees. It's one of those places you can just, you can just feel that there's, there's something about that place. And you walk inside to this hill. There's a museum there. And uh, you see that there's a whole, there's a whole network of trenches and you're standing in a place called Ammunition Hill, Givata Tachmoshet. What made this hill such a special hill? This was the second costliest battle in Israeli military history. In 1967, um, after three days, the Jewish people realized it was time to go home. Uh, the Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, who's been dead now, I believe, 50 years, um, made a decision that we were going to take back, we were going to reunite Yerushalayim. There was a wall running around the city. You know, all over the world, they talked about that other city with the wall down the middle, Berlin. People's hearts cried for the Berliners who were split up the east and the west. Same Germans, by the way, just now they were Berliners. Nobody talked about the other city, that other wall. Ran through the heart of Yerushalayim, full of barbed wire and concertina fencing and minefields. And Israel decided it was time to come home. In order to take Yerushalayim, you go up on a roof, right? And you look east towards the Temple Mountain beyond. You see the ridge line. 
it's very clear that Yerushalayim is an Ir Harim Savivla. It's a city that was always surrounded by, by, by hills, by mountains. And certainly back in 67, you couldn't take this city, you couldn't take the Kotel, the Temple Mount, the Jewish Quarter, you couldn't take the old city of Jerusalem without taking the supporting ridge lines. The strategic command from the top of the ridge was just, wouldn't have worked. And so they started with this hill, Givatat Tachmoshet. There was a Jordanian police station up there and a school and a big ammo depot. That's why it was called uh, Ammo Hill. And the Jordanians had built this intense network of trenches. And the Israeli army understood that they had to take this position to move along the ridgeline to get to the Mount of Olives, to take the whole ridgeline all the way to Amor Natsiv, the palace of the high commissioner up uh, to the south of us, so that they could take the old city. Uh, they moved out at about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, they had uh, tanks supporting the infantry. Uh, the tanks got stuck in the minefields in the concertina barbed wire, and they couldn't advance. They were, you know, old tanks. And so the paratroopers had to go on alone. And they encountered some of the most difficult fighting in modern warfare, what's known as trench warfare, Yad Mivutzal. Now, one of the fundamental principles of trench warfare, okay, is that there's a network of trenches with all sorts of little, they're called kuchs, little pockets with little, you know, if you've never been, you should go up there and wander around. Um, it's where the paratroopers today do a lot of their ceremonies. Uh, some of your friends got uh, their tekes kumta, they got their red berets there. I um, there was red beret there not too long ago. And, uh, and, and they do it right above those trenches for the following reason. When you go into those trenches, and the trenches very often are higher than you are. And inside the trenches, there's all of a sudden like a little bunker. And the bunker overlooks something, or it's a storage depot. You, you have to take every single bunker. You can't leave one pocket untaken, because you're in a narrow trench. And one guy with a machine gun can cut down a whole unit. Now the way you fight, the way we were trained to fight in trench warfare, is in two-man teams. The guy in front is firing. When he runs out of ammo, he goes down on one knee. The guy next to him continues firing. And they kind of leapfrog forward one by one. And the men in back do the same. And if need be, the two guys in front drop down on the knee and the guys behind fire, and that's how you work. Jordanians were very clever. They got advice from the Russians. And they built, um, the French, they built very narrow trenches. So that when you're standing in one of these trenches, and go there and you'll see what I mean, if you're wearing your web gear, your gun, it's so narrow that the walls are touching your arms. So when you run out of ammo on the front, on the, front the guy behind you can't get around you. It's very clever. So what do you do? You're in front. All a Jordanian has to hear is that your ammo ran out, poked his head out, and fires, and you're finished. So on the spot, without anybody giving orders, the guy in front, the anonymous paratrooper, to this day nobody knows exactly who it was, throws himself down on the ground, realizing nobody can get by him, and just starts screaming, I lie, I lie, I lie. Yalla, on me, come over me. Right? There's a guy lying in the dirt, trying to switch his ammo, while a company of paratroopers literally run over him, he's carrying the state of Israel, the Jewish people, on his shoulders. And one by one they moved. Then the Jordanians realized that the Israelis were moving inside the trenches. There was a gun position, a little uphill, about maybe 20 yards up from the trenches. And they realized that the Israelis had reached a critical point. If you go into the trenches, there are certain points where if you stand, they can see your heads. I guess they saw the soldiers' silhouettes, they heard the firing. So they started firing with a heavy machine gun. But of course, that's not a problem because you're in the trench, you just duck down. So an industrious Jordanian realized there was a much simpler way to deal with this. He just took a grenade and lopped it down, rolled down the hill and into the trench. 
blew up, killed a couple of paratroopers, took another grenade, started doing this. Paratroopers quickly realized that if they didn't figure out what to neutralize or to keep these Jordanians from throwing the grenades down the hill, they'd all be killed, the battle would be lost, Yerushalayim wouldn't be taken. They understood what was at stake here. So one of the soldiers hoisted himself up out of the trench, open, and started firing while he ran alongside the men in the trenches. So the men in the trenches tried to take the fighters in the trench, and the Israeli soldier now, totally without cover, is covering them from above. Well, very quickly he gets cut down. So someone realized somebody else has to take his place. So somebody rolled out and took his place. And again, they're covering, they're keeping the Jordanians' heads down. And eventually the Jordanians were, you know, they were in a fortified position. They, all they had to do was poke their gun out. And one by one, paratrooper after paratrooper gets cut down. And every time one of them got cut down, another one took his place. 42 Israeli paratroopers died in the two hours of that battle. At the end of the day, in that battalion, there were only 11 men, if I'm not mistaken, that were left uninjured. Entire battalion. And the most amazing thing about that story is that afterwards, nobody could remember anyone giving an order to do that. It wasn't like they were ordered to roll out. They just figured it out. And each person understood that what was at stake here was much bigger and just rolled out to what was essentially a suicide mission. 42 men on that day made the ultimate sacrifice. And if you go up on that hill, you can see that there are trees planted all over the hill. There are 182 trees. There's a tree planted for every Israeli soldier that fell in the battle for Yerushalayim in the Sixth Day War. And we all have one of those trees. And we're sitting here now, in this place, literally. Like You, you hear this, like you're sitting in, in America, you're hearing a story, it's just, uh, we owe them. We really owe them. We would not be in the old city without those 42 men giving up everything. We, we wouldn't have come back to the hotel. We wouldn't be doing a seum here tonight. All that stuff for the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifice. That is a very loaded word. What is the meaning of sacrifice? Why is it that we sacrifice? So this book, Vayikra, is the book of sacrifices. What is that all about? Now you know that one of the things we love to do here at Oraita is to take Torah, to study it and understand it, and to find its relevance. Like how is it relevant to me? Right? I wear tefillin, I wrap it around my arm, I'm attempting to bind myself to Hashem. How do we do that? Right? We wear tzitzit, and it has a tchelet string, a blue string, which reminds us of the sea, the depths, the mystery, the things we can't understand, the sky, things are clear. How is it relevant? So what do you do with sacrifices? I messed up. I turned the light off by accident on Shabbat. Oh, that's terrible. You know what you got to do? you got to take a lamb and go to the Temple Mount and slaughter it. Well, what does one have to do with the other? Why does a korban somehow accomplish anything? How is that an atonement? Now the Rambam, we're going to talk about the Rambam, Right? The Rambam Maimonides has a very problematic idea. The Rambam and the Mordechim, in the Guide to the Perplexed, offers a very perplexing perspective. That's a lot of peas. Okay? In Chelet Gimel, if you remember, the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed has three parts. Right? The first part is basically a dictionary. It says if we're going to talk, we're going to understand the theology, philosophy of Judaism, we first have to define our terms. Good, Okay? We can't talk about whether Hashem is created, whether man is created in the image of God before we understand what's an image. What's an image? Right? And he has a, dic- a dictionary of terms. 
And by the way, it's a powerful thing to study. It's, some of it is very hard to understand, right? The Rambam's definition of these words. You want to give a great Torah to Shabbos table? Pick something, find it in the Rambam, understand his definition, and you'll have a word. Okay. The third section, and he goes a little deeper in the second section, whatever, but the third section, Chela Gimel, that's where he gets into the real philosophy of mitzvah. Understanding what Judaism is all about. And he has a discussion about Kambanos. It's in Parag Gimel, uh, it's in Chela Gimel, the third section, Parag Lamedet, 32nd chapter. And he says, he says as follows. I'm not going to read the whole piece, it's worth reading, but right. The Rambam says, the Jewish people get out of Egypt, and they become accustomed to a certain way of life. They have habits. They have norms. And part of that norm is that they understood that you serve God through certain activities. And the primary action whereby the ancient pagans served their gods was through offering up sacrifices. So, lo it can't be, according to human nature, that a person who everything, changes everything all at one job. Right? Right? Then everybody did this. It was the norm to do it. People used to offer up animals. It can't be that Hashem would cause us to leave behind the things we were used to. We had to find a way to serve Hashem within the context of our own norms. And therefore, Hashem gives us karbanot. The karbanot, the, the, the sacrifices, we're not ready to fully leave Egyptian culture, but instead of offering it to pagan gods, now we're offering it to Hashem. It's a problematic idea. The Ramban goes bananas with this idea. Right? He says, first of all, the idea of the korban comes from the word karov. It's supposed to bring me closer. How is offering up animals going to bring me closer to Kosh Baruch if it's, if it's a, a custom of idolatry? And second of all, he says the Torah tells us very clearly that people were offering korbanot long before Egypt. It can't be that we just got accustomed to this in Egypt and we couldn't leave it all at once. Who offered up korbanot before, before Egypt? Who was the first one who offered a korban? Kain and Evel. By the way, Adam, according to the Medrash, but fine. Right? Noach. Noach gets out of the, out of the teva and he offers up a carbon. Right? He brings a sacrifice. This is long before Egypt. And it's clear, by the way, when he does this, that Hashem is happy about it. Listen to this Pasuk. This is Perakhet Pasuk Chafalaf. Pasuk Chaf. Right? Chapter 8. Right after Noach gets out of the flood, Vayivet Noach Mizbeach Hashem. He builds an altar. Vayikach Mikola Beimatoa Mikola Fatoa Vayalolot Vamizbeach. And he takes from the pure, the kosher animals, leave aside what that means for now, and he puts them up on this altar, and he offers them up as olot. What's an olah? Anybody know? It's a type of carbon. What type of sacrifice is it? It's what? It's a whole burnt offering. Right? It's a korban nidava. Except with, with, with two exceptions, you're not, you're not, uh, you have no obligation to offer up an olah. Right? The only time that you have a relationship where you offer up an Ola, a whole burnt offering, not as, an, uh, as, a, as a, what's the word, as a uh, voluntary act, like I want to thank Hashem or I survived something, whatever, you can offer up a Shlomim or an Ola, right? But a whole burnt offering, you offer when you, when you go up to, to see the, the Beit HaMikdash and you're inspired. So Hashem says, when you're inspired, you're obligated to do something with that. So there too, it's sort of a voluntary thing. Right? 
And then it says, Vayarach Hashem et Reach Enichoach. Right? And that's when, Vayom Hashem Alibo, Hashem says, I'm no longer going to curse, I'm never going to destroy the world, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> so Hashem accepts, so there's obviously the concept of giving up a sacrifice long before pagan idolatry. This has nothing to do with pagan idolatry. Noach was not a pagan. Noach didn't, you know, the world was destroyed. It's time to get out of pagan society. So that's an interesting question. What is the Ramam talking about? By the way, on this topic, this is fascinating. What does it mean, Vayarach Hashem et Reach Hanichoach? What does it mean? Hashem what? Hashem knew? Smell the sweet smell. Anything bother you about that? First of all, Hashem doesn't smell. That's a strange line. But second of all, why is the smell what's awesome about a carbon? Why the smell? Why doesn't Hashem see that Noah is offering up a carbon? Why doesn't Hashem take a bite? Now we all know that you get excited. I mean, when they build the basin Mikdash, when the temple gets built, and they start offering up these sacrifices, people from, you know how Isha they charge money to get on the roof? We don't? Huh, we're going to change that. They're going to come up on a roof to smell the biggest mangal in history. Okay? It's going to be the biggest barbecue in history and the sweet smell. I mean, come on, you walk into a burger joint, you get hungry when you walk in. But why is the smell of a good burger so awesome? Because you get to eat it! So why is the smell what's important? By the way, you find this in Vayikra also. If you look in, uh, in Vayikra here, right, in, in the discussion of the sacrifices that we offer, what does it say? It says, Viktiru et b'nei the Koranim offered up, Aaron and his sons, they offered up this Ola, this whole burnt offering, right? Here in Paragimel, in the third chapter of Vayikra, as a sweet smell. What's with the smell? Why is that, right? You could say he saw the smoke, okay? All right, so now we have two questions. We understand what is the relevance of sacrifices. How could the Rambam say that sacrifices were the result of our idolatrous ways and we weren't ready to leave it. Now, by the way, if the Rambam says that the reason Hashem gave us sacrifices was because really we were idolaters and we were, offering, we were used to offering up sacrifices, so we couldn't leave everything all at once. So he did it slow. He said, all right, I'll give them sacrifices. That implies that when we get to a higher level, we won't need sacrifices. But the Rambam does not say that. The Rambam and Hilchos Malachim, okay, which is what's going to be when the Mashiach comes, when the temple is rebuilt. In the 11th parak, you want to read an interesting parak in the Rambam, read a parak of There's going to come a king, he's going to be anointed, he's going to be an ethical person, he's going to be an incredible human being. Okay? Right? Um, and he's going to come and he's going to, he's, going to bring, he's going to bring redemption. He's going to build the Beit HaMikdash and he will gather in the exiles. Don't invest in property in Tinek because it ain't going to last. We're all coming home. Sheikh's going to come, right? Okay? All of the customs, all the rules, all the laws that we had in the time of the Basement is going to come back, we're going to offer up sacrifices. So, clearly the Rambam thinks you do offer up sacrifices. But we haven't been pagan idolaters for a long time. So how do I understand that in the modern Vuchim he says we only did this so that we could gradually ease ourselves out of idolatry? And in Hilchus Malachim, in the Yad HaChazaka, at the end of his magnum opus on law, he says, when we build the Beit HaMikdash, we build the temple, we're going to offer up sacrifices. And if you want an even better example of this, 
If you look in the Rambam in Hilchos Meila, where is Hilchos Meila? What is, what is Meila, by the way? What are the laws of Meila? Anybody know what Meila is? Exactly. When you take something which is set aside for Kedusha, for holiness, right? I, I donate this holy bottle to the base of Mekdash, and then I decide to use it to water my plants. That's Meila. You can't take some, you can't take a, a, a Kiddush cup and use it to, I don't know, uh, uh, to water your plants. It's been used for something else. You don't take a curtain that was on an iron Kodesh and then use it as a blanket to cover your bed. Right? So anything that was set aside for Kedusha, in this case for the Beit HaMikdash. So that's Hilchos Meila. Okay? Where would I find the laws of Meila? What do you think? Which book of the Rambam? It's all about service in the temple. Which book? Avodah. Correct. You would find it's the last set of Allahot in Avodah. Okay? In the book that, of the 14 books that deals with service in the temple. And it's the last halach in Hilchos Meila. Which means this is the end of all of Sefer Avodah. The next set of halachos is Karban Pesach, that's already Karbanos. So this is, you know, we have a principle that what you start and end with is the crux. This halacha is the end of the entire book that talks about the Beis Nekdash. And what does he say? The world exists for the korbanot. That's what the Rambam says. This is not some, you know, klezmer rabbi in the Hasidic world. We're talking about the Rambam. The whole world is for korbanot. And by the way, what is halacha? What is this halacha in Parakhet? Do you remember when we started the year and I was introducing you to the concept of mitzvot and I said there are different types of mitzvot. There are chukim that we can't understand. There are mitzvot. And everybody said chukim are the ones we can't understand and the the, the, the Rashi in, in, in Chukat says, right, Gzeirahi milfanai ve'en herbo. This chok, this red heifer law, you can't question it, right? And everybody thinks that's a chok as we can't stand it. The Rambam here says, right, Ra'ula damlit mornein. This is where the Rambam says a person should peruse. You should understand what the mitzvot are about. And even if you can't find a reason for them, you should still try. This is where we responded to that illusion. This is where we developed the idea of, of attempting to understand mitzvot. What is this doing in Hilchos Me'ilah? Why in, why in Me'ilah, where, where it's taking something that is set aside for holiness and, and desecrating it or using it for chol, why in that section do we find this idea that korbanot are, are, are the foundation of the world, the foundation of life? And how do I understand this, this, this debate in the Rambam? Right? And what is this reach nichach? What is this, this sweet smell? Okay, and by the way, one last question because someone here—I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody here this week in Hilchodeya started asking, or Tefila asked me a question, and I promised we would get to it in the carbon year. We don't have carbon today, right? We don't, have, we don't have temple. We don't have sacrifices, or do we? Somebody tell me why we do. That's right, because the Gemara in Brachos and Daf Chafav, the twenty-sixth folio of the Tractate of Brachot. Okay. For the, you know, right? So uh, in Brachos it says, right? Keneged tmidin tiknu. We set three tfilot because we have three, we do three things. We have, to, we have a tamichel boker, we have a tamichel burner baim, and we have ektachlav mevar. We burn the notar, we have a service in the morning, every day, an offering called the, in fact, it's called the tamid, it's consistent. And who was it tonight who made a see and who mentioned this salacha? Surely, right? Okay. In fact, it might have been Surely who asked me about tefillah. Was that true? No. Whatever. Okay. Right? So, 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 
And then we have Tamid Shobin Arbaim, we have the afternoon, Korban Tamid, right? And then we, we do service at night, we burn on the Mizbeach, right? What is, why is Tefillah take the place of a Korban? How does, how does attempting to understand what Hashem wants of me relate to offering up a lamb? So I want to give you, I'll share with you an idea, which is the opening door of a very deep concept of what Korban are all about, how they relate to tefillah and everything else. And any question that you will come with Korbanot, in my opinion, you will be able to resolve with this idea. So in order to resolve this idea, I just want to tell you one more thing. This is interesting. If you look in almost every English translation, okay, this is a good pasuk right here. What does that mean? Everybody says it means that they burned it on his back, right? Okay, they offered it up in the back. But the word laktir, kuf tet resh, does not actually mean to burn. And yet that's a word that's used every time you want to burn a carbon, a, a, a sacrifice on the altar. Right? But it doesn't mean to burn. We have a word to burn, and we find that word somewhere, right? Um, in The best example is the Allah of notar. Anybody know what the Allah of notar is? What does notar mean? Notar is like your tear is the remnant. If I have an offering and it's supposed to be offered up in its entirety, and then at a certain point, there's stuff left. Either there's food that you didn't need from a carbon chatat, or there's stuff that didn't get burned. It has to be on the Mizbech, and it has to be completely burned by the morning. You don't leave carbon for the next day, for various reasons. So the Pesach says, Vanutar mi zavach. This is Perak Zayin, Pesach Zayin, 717. And what's left over from the sacrifice, it gets burned in the fire. So we have a word for burning. Yisareth, Shreifa is to burn. Right? We burn chametz. What is laktir? What is laktir? Where, where else do I find the concept of laktir? Pardon? That's right, the ketoret. Now what is the ketoret? We take all these spices, and we mix them up together, Okay? And what do we do with them? We burn them. Okay? But what are we doing there? What's the purpose of burning them? What happens? What does it become? Pardon? Well, what smells? How do I know if the Torah is being offered? I'm sitting in Tel Aviv. You know what? I'm sitting here, and there's a basic English. How do I know the Torah is being offered? Smoke. There's a smoke. Okay? Victoroto means... You know, to burn it is to destroy it. Laktir is not about burning the carbon. It's about transforming the carbon into something else. So I got curious about this. Right? This is an interesting topic. What, what does it mean, laktir? And I went looking. Where do you look? Rabbeinu Google. So I went looking at Rabbeinu Google. And it actually took me to an article about Rav Ezra Bick. Rav Bick was my Rebbe, remains my Rebbe. Um, he was, when I got to Gush, the first Magid Shir that I was Zoha, that I was privileged to sit in, in Shiran, uh, was Rav Bik. The first three months, I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know Hebrew. Uh, you see my notebook, there's like, you know, the Ramban says that, you know, Kedushin is Dora, you know, and then you get this line. That's, so I can always tell exactly which day I fell asleep when, right? But eventually, he totally changed my life, and I learned how to seriously learn in a Shir. And he has the most incredible discussions and Shirim on the Shivat Haaretz on VBM. Highly recommend it. So he has an article on Karbanos. Uh, it's not exactly the same topic. And he notes this. And he has a line 
It's a fascinating line. It's such a, such a phenomenal way of putting it. And he says that what the carbon is doing, right, what you're really doing, you're transforming the material <coughs> into the spiritual. You're transforming the material into the spiritual. You're taking an animal and you're transforming it into smoke. Now smoke represents ruach, represents the spirit. And there are many sources for this. If you look at what happens in Yom Kippur, right? When, when our sins are forgiven, the white smoke comes out. There's a lot of stuff going on. I believe, by the way, I believe, I don't know if you know about this, there's this uh, f- fascinating custom that they have when they choose a pope. All the cardinals get together and nobody's allowed to go in there, right? And how does the public waiting out in Vatican Square, they sit there for days. People just camp out to wait for this because it only happens once every 20, 30 years, whatever it is. And they pick a new pope and when they've picked the new pope and it's all done and nobody killed anybody, then they light whatever they light and white smoke comes out of this hole in the ceiling. And everybody goes, ah, hallelujah, whatever, right? That comes from the Torah. That's where they get it from, right? Smoke. So what is it you're doing? You're transforming, right? Laktir alamizbeach is to take the animal and to transform it, to offer it up as smoke. In fact, which do I do this with the most? What do I burn the most? Is the ola. What does it mean that a korban is an ola? comes the word la'alot. It rises up. It becomes the smoke that rises up. So now let's see if we can put this all together. How did I get there? What is it that I'm doing when I have to bring a korban? Right? Inevitably, I became a little too ensconced, a little too distracted by the animal side of me. Right? If, if in this world... Right? What did we say? There are three things, Mershon Pirkei Avos, the Rambam, and Hilchodeot at the end of Perak Bet, beginning of Perak Gimel. Right? There are three things that take a person out of the world. They remove your ability to have the meaningful life you're meant to have. To serve Hashem as you're meant to serve Hashem. And what are they? Hakina, ve'atava, ve'akavot. Jealousy. Right? When there's someone else that has something, you forget that if he has it, it's because Hashem wants him to have it. And you want it. You get a little too focused on yourself. And you're a little too focused on the stuff. And the tava, what's tava? Tava are the physical desires that we have. You're so focused on, you know, how many burgers you want to eat, you forget about that you're just eating to serve a higher purpose and the bracha is more important than the burger. Right? The blessing is more important than the burger. And kavod, people who pursue honor. So what do we do? We come up to the Beit HaMikdash and we take an animal which represents the animal that I can become and we offer it up. We, we, we raise ourselves above the animal. We take the physical and we transform it back into the ruach, into the ashan, into the smoke. And that's essentially what we're trying to do. Lack tear. To offer ourselves up. There but for the grace of God go I. Now we can go back to the Rambam. The Rambam says that it's true. You know, the, the, the uh, Ravinera and this Tal Hermon quotes the Tzatnas Paneach, the Marit. And he says, when the Rambam in the Morn of Uchim, and the guy to the perplexed, says that we were leaving the world of idolatry, the Rambam is not describing what sacrifices are. He's describing what a world without sacrifices would be. A world where we don't attempt to restore the balance between the animal in me and that which has no limits, the capacity to, to, to be spiritual, to reach out to the divine, to discover the essence of who I am. When we lose that balance then the world becomes focused on chavas, on violence and robbery, and that in the time of Noah, because the world got destroyed. 
When I get stuck in the material, in the tangible, in the physical, I lose sight of the purpose of what we're doing here to begin with. So we have to restore that balance. We take that physical, that animal, and we offer it up, and we rediscover the intangible. What is the reach michoach? What's the sweet smell? Why do we make avdala and smell something? Right? Because smell, this is a Kabbalistic idea, smell is the only one of the five senses, you must have heard this from me or Rabbi Aaron at some point this year, smell is the only one of the five senses that, that retained itself in its entirety as it was in Gan Eden. Right? The, the Hasidus believes that, that all, we, we completely changed. Right? When we were in the Garden of Eden, we weren't physical beings, we were beings of light. Right? It, it says that, uh, there's, a, there's an opinion of Rabbi Meir, when Hashem makes katnot or, the mentor says, I'll decree or with an ayin, meaning cloaks of skin, like this is our skin, this is our cloak, but rather or with an aleph, light. We were beings of light. We were, what's, by the way, what happens when you have light? Right? So, you can't tell the difference between the light that comes from that bulb and the light that comes from that bulb. It creates oneness. Adam and Chava were other, but they were also one. They were from one being. And we lost that. Right? So, so the smoke taking the otherness and transforming him back into oneness is a deeper idea of what Karbanan is all about. Right? So, then we messed up. And we tasted of the fruit. All the senses were employed, except for the sense of smell. Vatero Tokitovu Chava sees the tree. They hear Hashem Vaishmuat Kol Hashem Alokimi Talech Bagan Vulochayom. They hear God walking in the garden. Right? They touch the tree. Right? They speak to God. The only one of the five senses that was not employed was smell. And therefore, Hasidus Kabbalah believes that smell takes me back to the way life is meant to be. It removes me from the physical. It's the most intangible of the tangibles in this world. So I take the physical and I, I, I transform. It's not that smoke isn't physical, but it's less physical than the animal. And that's the whole point of Karbanot. Can I get back? And we'll finish off just by saying that's the connection to Tefillah. Because what have we said all year? What's Tefillah all about? What does it mean to Palel? It means to struggle with what I really want in this world. Right? What does Hashem want of me? What could I want? What do I want? Do I want what I want? Is what I want what I should want? What's my son? That's what a person is supposed to experience when he's offering a karban. What do I really want? Is this who I want to be? Is that what I want to be? You know, we mentioned in the in the shir that we had downstairs in mitzvot earlier that uh, the Mishnah Berakhova says that, that when redemption comes, the Mashiach is going to come ke'ani or chevel like a poor person riding on a donkey. That doesn't mean that if uh, you know if, if Bill Gates shows up in a limo, he's definitely not Mashiach. It's not a literal. There's an idea there. The person who becomes Mashiach is such a fine human being, he's such an ethical person, that he's not stuck in the materialism. That stuff doesn't matter to him. You have a chief rabbi who gets indicted and goes to prison for bribery, he can't be a leader anymore. He can't be an ethical role model. For someone to be an ethical role model, it's not that he doesn't have money, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he won't buy a house, but the house isn't important to him, it's just a vehicle for something bigger. So he's in a knee. He's like, that stuff doesn't matter to him. And he's rochev al chamor, chamor, the chomer, the material that we have. Does the, does, does the animal stuff in our life ride us, or do we ride it? Who's controlling who? You ever see a guy walking a dog and you're not sure who's walking who? Because the dog's like pulling him along? The Mashiach is riding his donkey. The chomer in his life doesn't control him, he controls it. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm taking the animal on me and I'm saying, this is not who I really want to be, this is not who I am. And when I can do that, when I, can, when I can lower the impact 
of the physical, the animal world on myself, then I can hear a whole different world. I can hear a calling. I can understand what Hashem is, is Hashem has asked me. That's why this is in Vasefer Vayikra, the Sefer of being called. You know? That's what sacrifice is all about. Sacrifice could be as simple as giving up 10 minutes to clean a chum pot. It could be something as powerful as rolling out of a ditch, knowing with absolute certainty that you are saying goodbye to your loved ones, to life as you know it, you're, you're giving something, you're giving everything up for something that's bigger than you. Because you're not stuck in the you. You is just a vehicle for something bigger than you. So Judaism doesn't believe in, in, in asceticism and doesn't believe that there's a mitzvah to die for God. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to find ways to die for God. But it means that every once in a while, a person has an opportunity to give something up, the stuff, the nonsense of life, for the things that mean something bigger. You know, you get home, you get back to America, you leave home, and you're back with your family, and your parents, I don't know, they, they, they want to go to a movie. And you just went to Yeshiva, and you're like so into it, you're so excited, you know, you're just starting a new Masech to Beta, and, and you just got the latest Ahmed Yomi from Ravadi, you can't believe it, but they want to go to dinner. And you're like, dinner? Oh man, pizza, I'm going to study Ravadi, it's crazy. But you see that it means a lot to your parents. So you're not going out to have pizza. You're going out to be with your parents. Pizza's just an excuse. You're sacrificing something that means something to you for something bigger than that. And sometimes you give up the pizza dinner to sit and learn. It's all about why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it. That's the idea of Korbanot. And I don't, I really don't. I must have had 10 conversations this week. People who were like debating different topics. Which college to go to, what to do over Benazmanim, you know, whether they should stay or go, and all these types of questions. The struggle, if you're struggling with those questions for the right reasons, because you're discovering that there are things that are bigger than we are. You know, one of the feelings that you have to have after a week visiting places like 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 Akko and seeing what these people gave up everything for us, for Am Israel, never mind Auschwitz and Treblinka, and you come back and you feel small. You just feel small. Just like you're standing in a Beit HaMikdash. You're just so small in a place like that. And you take the animal and you say, you know what, there's something so much bigger than me, and that, that's what makes life meaningful. That's the Sefer of Ayikra. And now I understand, by the way, why I wake up in the morning is Allah is supposed to say Karbanot. You study the Karbanot, at least the Karban Tamil, to create that consistency of whether it's just about me or whether it's bigger than me. So that's a little food for thought, no pun intended, on, uh, on Prashat Vayikra. And... Uh, you know, bless us all, Bezrat Hashem, we should find the things in our life that are really worth it, meaningful. It doesn't mean you have to, it's no big deal, that's the lesson from the story of Yitzchak, it's no big deal to die for God, it's a big deal to live for God. But that you find the things in your life that give you meaning, that drive you, that motivate you, that transform you. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.